On today's episode, Rev Duchesne and I act under pressure and pay the price. This is The Hard Move. Hello, and welcome to The Hard Move, a Powered by the Apocalypse discussion podcast. I am your host, Matthew Gravelin, and with me today is my guest, Rev Deshane. How you doing, Rev? Not too bad. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, actually. Uh, having a pretty easy, lazy weekend, watching some Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Oh, man. Yeah, I just finished that the other day. It's real good. I think I'm just about to start episode nine. Yeah. I'm taking my time. I looked and there was only 10 episodes. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta go slow. I cannot... I need to savor this. This is a, <laughs> this is one of my favorites. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Watchmen or V for Vendetta. Like they made some little changes from the book, but it makes the story a little more coherent. I, you know, I quite like it when they do make significant changes because then you can divorce the two and just say there is a book and there is a movie and they're both good yeah. for different reasons rather than mm-hmm. they try to adhere to it so strictly and you nitpick it. Well, enough about comics. We're not talking about masks today. Yeah, it's true. We're going to be talking about a move um, from Monster of the Week. But first, um, I'd like to chat a little bit about you. You are the the host and uh, GM of a podcast called The Crit Show, yeah? That's right. And this is a Monster of the Week actual play. Um, and I went to your website and, and it said that in the first season, you're doing Monster of the Week, but you're pretty deep into a, uh, into a season one. You got like 40 episodes, right? Yeah, that's right. I think that uh, our first season will wrap up somewhere uh, in May. Right on. Do you have a, you think you're going to be doing more Monster of the Week after that or checking out some other systems? Um, we're going to check out some other systems, but I think that our framework will always be Monster of the Week. It's kind of related to the story that they're going through, uh, but it seems like they're going to be kind of traveling around to other dimensions and uh, I think I've decided that each dimension is going to be a different powered by the apocalypse system. I I love everything about that. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to see where the boys go. All right. So we are talking about a move from Monster of the Week. And I think we should just get right into it. Why don't we go ahead and have you name our move? All right. So the move that I would like to discuss is Act Under Pressure. If, if you'd like to, you can go ahead and read it for uh, for everybody. All right. Act Under Pressure. This covers trying to do something under conditions of particular stress or danger. Examples of act under pressure are uh, staying on task while a banshee screams at you, barricading a door while giant rats catch up, resisting the mental domination of a brain worm, fighting on when you're badly injured. When you act under pressure, roll plus cool. On a 10 plus, you do exactly what you set out to do. On a 7 to 9, the keeper is going to give you a worse outcome, a hard choice, or a price to pay. And on a miss, things go to hell. I always like it when they just kind of, they throw in that little tongue-in-cheek on a miss. Like, we all know what's going to happen on a miss. Like, there's no need to sugarcoat it. It's like, oh, it's not just a bad outcome. It's just, no, no, things are going to go to hell. This is going to get real ugly for everybody involved. And that's PBTA, right? I I always wish games would kind of lean into that more. Like, I think miss is like one of my least favorite terms in all of PBTA. It's not a miss. It's not like you swung your sword and didn't connect. Like something really awful is about to happen to you. Yeah. So this is, um, I've expressed this on several episodes. I love what I call the catch-all moves of PBTA games. And I know that sometimes those get a bad rap, but I always love seeing how different designers handle it. Um, so I'm really excited to be kind of talking about this um, because the book 
expresses that this is a general purpose move. Uh, it's basically, as you said, it's acting under pressure, and you use this move when you want to do something that has stress or danger, but it's not explicitly covered by another move in the system. Um, so I wanted to start with talking about um, how how do you use this move versus other more specific moves? When when do you know it's time for act under pressure, and when do you know it's time for something else? Uh, so for me, act under pressure is definitely about surprise. Um, you know, if someone is surprised and trying to do something, it can be act under pressure. Um, if, you know, the stakes are high, it's act under pressure. Um, you know, if they're being charged by a creature and they want to pull out their gun and shoot it, you know, some people might use kick some ass for that. But for me, I think that's still act under pressure because it's getting the gun out and it's firing and it's, you know, keeping cool in that situation. Do you use the act under pressure result as the, and then I kick some ass or do you do one move and then the other? I use it as the result, and so that way they're not just rolling two back-to-back moves. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think that really simplifies things. You know, there's no need to overly complicate, you know, what is supposed to be arguably a very simple move. Yeah. And then this move does roll with cool, which in this system is just how calm and collected you are. Uh, Generally, the cool oriented playbooks are something like the like the professional i think the crooked's really primed for doing cool and then there are definitely characters that don't lend themselves to cool very often do you find that the playbooks that don't get as much cool to start out with do those players tend to shy away from doing act under pressure or do you encourage them to do it or do you do you put them in situations uh, yeah, most of the times I think that act under pressure, you know, with investigate a mystery or kick some ass, they're kind of leading that narrative. But I think that most times act under pressure stuff does come from my side just based off of the scenario. So they're not, you know, trying to, to trigger that move ever, mm-hmm. um, but they are getting it as a result of the situation that they're in. Yeah, that's actually interesting. The The way PBTA moves normally trigger the... The trigger itself is something a player is actively trying to get their character to do, you know, when you kick some ass. No one's accidentally kicking ass. Yes. But act under pressure is a thing that just could happen to them. I assume there are situations when a player would put their character intentionally in a situation to act under pressure, but this is something that could just happen through organic narrative of the story, Mm -hmm. which comes back more to the GM side of things. Yeah, I feel like this is the move that I certainly um, call the most in the sense of um, them doing an action that doesn't fall within, or even sometimes it does fall within the normal moves. So you you kind of get to decide they want to do their move, but are they in a position to confidently do their move? Yeah, exactly. The divine is falling off of a building and he wants to use angel wings. Well, is he panicking? If so, it might be a act under pressure to be able to, you know, get the mental focus to focus down and teleport. Yeah, that's an that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I I always kind of thought of it as you only really do this move when there literally isn't any other move that could handle the situation, but the circumstances under which you're trying to do the move do play a huge part in it. And I think as the this move, Act Under Pressure, is defined um, perfectly encapsulates that. Yeah, you know, because sometimes it's the situation of, oh, I think this is what's going to happen, and that's awesome because I've, you know, I've got a high stat in that, I've got a plus three or whatever, uh, and then the circumstances like, oh, no, this is actually really stressful and really difficult, you're going to act under pressure, and so that sometimes can throw a wild card in it if... Um, like you said before, some of the characters 
mm-hmm. may not be as primed and cool as they are in, say, you know, tough. Definitely. I, I can see that being like, you know, the spell slinger trying to go out there with their, their weird or whatever. And it's just like, nope, sorry. You, you like werewolves trying to eat you right now. So this isn't just like waving a wand. Yeah. All right. So mechanically, again, this is a super simple move. Um, you roll on cool. The book did kind of hint at that you really should set up specifically what the stress is before the the rolling happens, just so everybody's on the same page mm-hmm. um, with what's about to happen. And then 10 plus you do it. So the, the character does cast their spell. The character does pull out their gun and pop off a couple rounds. The character does get their angel wings out. It's just, it just happens. Seven and nine, worst outcome, hard choice, price to pay. I feel like this is, I've seen this seven to nine written a thousand different ways in different systems. And I love it every time. Mm-hmm. And then on a six minus on a miss, things go to hell. Um, and in the longer explanation, the book clarifies that the pressure overwhelms the hunter. So specifically, it wa- the book encourages you to utilize whatever the pressure was as the miss. But presumably you could kind of throw in any other type of thing. You know, they're they're falling off or they're being attacked by a werewolf, but maybe the werewolf isn't what actually harms them. Mm-hmm. So first question is, obviously, the, the meat of this move is in the seven to nine. What are some of the things that you're looking for from what the player is trying to do and what the situation is to influence how you decide what you choose to do with a seven to nine? Well, and I've discovered recently, actually, you know, like you said, we're 40-some episodes in, and whenever I do this move, and I've done this from the beginning, I give all three. Oh, interesting. And I let them choose. Instead of me deciding, okay, so you're going to get a hard choice, I come up with something for each of those, um, and I still let it be their choice. Because for me, thinking back just my own life in the outside world, uh, say that I'm, you know, running from something and I trip, in that split second as I'm falling... I think I have that Rolodex in my mind of like, well, I could try to catch myself with my hands, but that's really going to, you know, hurt my hands up or I could try to roll with it or, you know, I could try to just catch myself and keep running, but I'm going to be stumbling for a while. Like, I feel like when things start to go wrong, you get in that slow motion space. Um, And so I thought that for this move, that was kind of applicable. And so I just got in the habit of giving them three choices and they get to pick and still kind of direct the narrative so that it, like you said, if the uh, the werewolf is trying to eat them and they get a mixed success, you know, it might be that, yeah, you can duck away from it, but it's going to open up a line of sight and attack right to your partner, or you're going to be able to get away, but it's going to catch you with its teeth and a little bit of whatever is infecting it. Its rabies are going to get into your system, or, you know, you can get away from it, but it's going to have your scent. And so from the rest of the mystery, it's going to be able to track you. It's going to be able to just have your smell. And so then they go, oh man, okay, well, which of those paths do I want to go down? I'm betting that other GMs are desperately hoping that their players aren't listening to your podcast because you're doing like triple work. You are doing, (laughs) this is the the GM Olympics you're doing because you're doing all three every time. I love that. I actually think that's really... Awesome, because it does create that that bullet time moment where the player can pick a path based on whatever they're feeling at that moment, which you know what that it's I think it's like number one in every list of GM principles is be a fan of the players. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. Exactly. Like that, you know, I do. I just don't like um, the concept of, okay, something went something went wrong. They are successful, um, but there's going to be a hard 
a hard thing, a you know, a negative thing that happens to them. And again, just that idea of being a fan of the players, um, instead of me deciding like, well, I think this is what's going to be and it's really going to mess them up. Well, here are three bad things that I know each one of them is kind of going to be a problem. But you know what? You get to choose. You get to figure out what do you think is going to be the best for you to deal with in the moment. Yeah, I think that's great. Giving even more player like the players always kind of get some choices here, but you're just giving them even more agency to decide how they want this thing to play out. Yeah, you just pick their own poison. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I, I like the terms cooperative storytelling. You know, any game that really leans into cooperative storytelling is one that I'm interested in. And you're just creating more of that within this move. Yeah. And it just, it worked really well for our group because, um, you know, I had known two of them for 10 plus years and the other one I have known for three years and we had all done some acting and improv together uh, in college. And so just having the ability to bounce that narrative off the top of my head, okay, here are your three things and then be able to take one and run with it uh, just became, was just really natural for us. Yeah. Is it safe for me to assume that you are not a heavy notes kind of GM that you're more of a improv see where it goes type of GM. Um, I have heavy notes on the characters that they're going to run into and the monsters and the locations. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I try to keep it as loose as possible because I think I, you know, in our first story arc, I kind of overprepared, you know, three or four choices in, they've already gone a direction that I never anticipated. <laughs> and so it was like, oh, okay, well, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I've, I, I would say the more we play, the less notes that I make, um, but they mm-hmm. always pretty are consistently there for, um, you know, all the, the NPCs and the monsters and the locations. Yeah. So you have these modules that you can kind of move around, but I can see for any GM out there, your players are always going to find ways to go off the rails, but giving them as many routes and choices as you're giving them. Um, I imagine that's really hard to also hold on to a very linear storyline at the same time. Mm. One of the other interesting things mechanically about this move is that at least in the base book, there's probably other playbooks, but there is six playbooks in this game that utilize uh, or augment or in some way call upon act under pressure in their playbook moves. Do you find the playbooks themselves kind of leaning into any of these uh, chosen moves where they get to do extra stuff with it? Or uh, do they shy away from these? Have, do you have any experience playing with playbooks with these moves? Yeah, um, you know, for quite a while we had a professional and uh, he was pretty consistently using Bottle It Up um, so that he could succeed in places where he was failing because he felt like he was kind of, uh, you know, leading the team and if things were going badly and he had to make a choice under pressure and he failed, you know, he would take that kind of punishment of giving me hold against him on himself to fulfill what his character felt like was his duty on the team. Yeah, I like I like that narrative of it. I definitely feel that when I read this move like this is a this is a self-sacrifice like you're gonna do a good thing now but you know for sure that something's gonna come back to bite you yeah and I think that you know act under pressure coming up so much in all of the playbooks it also tells you something about monster of the week about the environment that they are in that it should be you know constantly dangerous uh, that things are always just pushing the limits of what they can handle, even in these characters that kind of have nerves of steel because they have been dealing with monsters for, you know, whatever, a year, two years, five years. Yeah. And I think given the different phases of 
a session, a hunt, if you will. Um, there's the obvious, you know, fighting a monster, there's lots of opportunity to act under pressure, but even researching and tracking a monster has its stressful situations. And then also acting in the public space when you're supposed to be kind of concealing all of this, there's a different, you know, emotional type of act under pressure that you might have to be doing if you're lying Mm -hmm. to loved ones or trying to lie to a police officer and get away with it or something. Right. Yeah. So again, this is a, a relatively simple move, but very ubiquitous across the whole system uh was there any other mechanical bits that you wanted to touch on before we get into that narrative i think the most important thing about this move in that mixed success is that it's still a success you know they still do the thing that they want to do but there's a problem with it um and you know i feel like sometimes people get the idea of mixed success as being kind of a success but more of a failure um and so i think it's just so important to make sure that you know, whatever it was they were setting out to do, they still do it. But there's a problem, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's It really is about adding complication and adding choice, but not taking away anything. Yeah. As you mentioned, you give your players a lot of options to take the choice or have the worst outcome. Do you like to hint at any of that? Do you like to wait to see how the move plays out before you give them any information? How much information do you give them up front versus after the dice have been rolled you know they know the situation that they're in most of the time mm-hmm. um i think every now and then something will happen where you know they'll uh, i'll just be like okay act under pressure because something is happening and one of them may have been aware of it and started to warn the others but you know they're they're kind of at a loss mm-hmm. and so most of the time for the, the like the mixed successes you know that all comes after the roll result and you know i can't think of a time really where they have chosen to that, that the price of any of them has ever been too high that they've just said, you know, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Because, mm-hmm. um, again, you know, if it's not something fairly important, um, you know, I'm not going to have it trigger a move. If it's something that they would just go, oh, that's a, too high of a price to pay. I'll just take whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. Then that means maybe I shouldn't have triggered the move because it's not that big or important uh, for the rule to have needed to be made. Right. That's interesting because my initial response to that was maybe I need to start making my prices higher. <laughs> so uh, I went the other way. Yeah. Warning for anybody who ever plays in my games. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I never I never want to preclude a player from doing a thing, but I also don't want to make those prices too easy to take. I, I want to make it tense right that's the whole thing we're doing here is there's pressure there's danger oh yeah. there's a chance of failure and you know th- this goes back to a similar thing where failing and doing damage i hate doing damage or doing harm to characters when they get mixed successes or fail moves there are times where it makes perfect sense that werewolf is trying to take a bite out of you you're going to take harm but I try and avoid it if I can, you know, like you, you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, the werewolf could infect you. That is so much more interesting than actually taking harm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for me, the, the, the sweet spot is for them to, you know, make the role and I give them the three options and to hear them go, those are all awful. <laughs> like, that's what I want. If, if one of them is, if they're just like, oh yeah, this one, then obviously I, I made one of them a little too, uh, too light. Right. I mean, like I said, that's a that's a, a lot of work that you're taking on to come up with not one, but three 
options and then also try and have them be tailored to the player in the situation and then also have them be balanced. So my hat's off to you for for doing that work for your players. And I hope that they really can appreciate that amount of work going in there. Yeah, I think that they all really enjoy the freedom of, you know, again, that kind of decision of how am I failing? Not failing, but how am I being punished Mm -hmm. for succeeding in what I'm trying? Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, like, like you said, you can dodge left and a thing's over there, you can dodge right, different things over there, it's up to you, like, you're gonna, you're gonna take, you know, you're probably going to encounter one of these things, there is always that, I'm just not gonna do it move, which has its own interesting narratives. You said that that very rarely happens. Can you remember a time that somebody just said, you know what, I decided I'm not going to go through with this because I don't like these choices and I'm just going to kind of back away in some way. And how did that play out? Yeah, the only one that I can really think of was getting out of the way of an attacking creature and that all of the results kind of led into other people being in harm's way in mm-hmm. one way or another and it was uh, our divine and he was like well no i'm just i'm gonna take it then that's why i'm here i'm here to protect people that's still a choice again there's there's no part of this that's doing nothing right that's the yeah the best part about pbta games is there's never nothing happening yes exactly so that's that's still even even when he technically didn't do any of the things you suggested still had a very interesting narrative outcome because it was based on his, you know, emotional, relational need to protect his his partners, which is, mm-hmm. again, that's super interesting. He's taking harm, but that's not like the point, right? The harm is not the interesting part of what's happening. Yeah, it's, it's that self-sacrifice or even if it's in that moment, that realization for him that maybe he had not uh, been as gung-ho about saving people. But in that moment, he makes that realization and it kind of changes his character from, you know, that point forward. Mm-hmm. So you also talked a little bit about this move kind of being a surprise. This isn't something that a player is setting out to do. Do you, I keep wanting to say werewolf, let's say something else. Uh, You know, a vampire like breaks down the door and suddenly we're doing an act under pressure as a surprise. Do you still let the players kind of choose how they're acting under pressure or do you let the situation kind of choose that for them? Usually the situation will choose it, um, but my players are really good about if if I you know have them act under pressure and it's unprompted by them, and I start to kind of lay out what is happening and maybe start to give them their results. Um, you know they're they're not shy about saying, well, you know I wouldn't have tried to run. I would have tried to you know get over to my guns. Like okay, well that's fair, mm-hmm. and so then I can kind of revamp the answer that I'm giving them. Um, but you know this far in the game, I'm. I'm pretty familiar with their characters and and how they're going to act. So that doesn't nearly happen as much as it used to. Um, But yeah, I mean, if it feels like this was unprompted and so I'm asking them to do it and they are, you know, unhappy, not even unhappy, but if they don't feel like it fits what they would have tried to do in that moment, uh, then I'm all about, you know, giving them the option to kind of reframe uh, what I'm giving them their results in. Yeah, that goes back to that cooperative storytelling. You know, I, I think I spend most of my time in games being the GM. But my gut says that players sometimes, especially new players, feel like they can't talk back, they can't offer other suggestions, and and they totally, definitely should. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If your GM is not listening to you when you say things like that, 
pause the game because there might be a bigger conversation you need to have. Yeah. The GM should be listening to you, you know, when exactly. Because you could say, oh, act under pressure to run away. And you're like, there's no way I would run away. He's like, be, like a vampire killed my family. I'm going to shoot at him. I am going to do what I need to do to get into this vampire's business. And that need like the narrative the you know the notes or whatever the linear story can't overrule that yeah exactly you know and that's what i love about um just this move in general is that you know you had asked me earlier how many notes i I probably don't i'm not a detailed or a heavy note person um Mm -hmm. you know so much of our story um you know it's our story is very episodic it's you know four or five episodes of mystery and it's all you know we're trying to do it kind of like a tv show so the whole story arc is connected and you know grows and so much of our story and the direction it has gone is based around those mixed success choices or those things go to hell um you know the story is not at all what i intended it to be when i started out and you know we're all the better for it yeah i bet i bet after 40 some episodes if you were even in the same state as your original plan that would be pretty impressive you're right um so kind of elaborating on that you know when you do give them their three choices and they decide to go in a direction that isn't really necessarily in line with where you thought they were going or maybe you wanted them to go do you have any kind of tips or things that you do to help roll that smoothly back into the rest of the narrative after the move is concluded? Um, you know, I think that part of it is just, I can't really think of a time where I gave them an option in those three that didn't somehow fit into the narrative. Like I haven't given them anything so wild that it doesn't really kind of flow into the world, but you know, I, I guess I don't know how a lot of other people run their games, but our game is very much about, three people who don't quite know what they're doing, but they've been, you know, thrust into this situation where they have to deal with this. They are not, you know, it is much more Buffy than, you know, third season of Supernatural. Right. It is. These are not the world weary people who know exactly what they're doing. Um, and so a little bit of the, of the goofiness or um, the bungles on these, you know, add to the color of the world they've created of these, you know, kind of three normal people who have been thrust into this role. Yeah, for sure. I, I I appreciate that, you know, again, this this whole game is based on episodic TV, basically. So, yeah. you know, hearing you compare, you know, this is a first season buffing out of third season Supernatural. I, I feel that so deeply because I love this game that that makes yeah. so much sense. Um, and I and I like that. I, that's another big aspect of I feel like PBTA and the more cooperative storytelling games is. They're not trying to make you superheroes. They're just trying to make you people who have some extra abilities, but you're still completely able to mess it up on a, on a grand scale. Yeah. So I have here a question <laughs> where I was going to ask you how you keep mixed success interesting, but I feel like we have nailed that one to the wall <laughs> because you're, you're going all out with all three of these options. Um, but I guess maybe... In some way, not necessarily, the question was going to be, which of the, you know, how do you bounce back and forth between those three things? But how do you keep coming up with three things for every act under pressure and still manage to kind of keep them fresh and keep them interesting for the players? Do you write stuff down ahead of time? Are you just like really amazing in improv? What's, what's the secret? 
It is. It is again. It's situational. You know, as we're talking about it, I'm picturing in my head. You know, we're not using a map or anything, but I'm picturing in my head the situation they're in mm-hmm. and their proximity with, you know, this, that, or the other, and so that it comes down to okay, so you did this thing and you're you were really close to your friends, and so I think that one of them has to involve danger for them, mm-hmm. or you know, a, another example. I guess uh, I had a player who was running across a grid in a theater, like up above the stage. Mm-hmm. and he slipped and he fell. And so his act under pressure was to try to catch the rope. And so he could get a hold of the rope. You know, he got a mixed success. Uh, so he could get a hold of the rope, but he was going to slide down and it was going to, you know, give a rope burn to his hands. And so it was going to uh, make him have a harder time using his weapons mm-hmm. um, or his foot would get tangled in it and he would essentially kind of get tied to the rope. He wouldn't hit the ground, but he was going to be tied mm-hmm. above um, and so again, it's, it's always situational. Um, I use the environment a lot in those choices. Um, if they're in the forest, if they're underwater, you know, the environment is always going to be at least one, if not two of those things. And then the other one will be often, um, you know, the safety of other people around mm-hmm. or, or some every now and then I do this very rarely, but it is problem with uh, losing a weapon or mm-hmm. um, you know something like that I don't do that one very often I, I try to make it kind of situational as much as possible yeah it's it's definitely one that I feel is kind of played out you know I hear it all the time and I I couldn't I can't remember exactly where or which systems it might be monster of the week some systems actually deter you from doing it because sometimes they're especially for um, the chosen, that weapon is a big part of their playbook. And if you take that away, you're taking away some of their playbook. So again, to be yeah. a fan of the characters is to not take away the stuff that makes them their characters. So, you know, the, um, you know, the professional and the expert have weapons. The chosen has a, a very important weapon and that sounds good on paper i guess narratively to say oh the chosen loses his weapon it flies out of his hand yeah that can be that can be okay but what does that mean that means he can't do some of the stuff that he normally can do in in the game and suddenly you've taken away some of his options yeah you know for me something like that is much more a is a failure that is a six and under Mm -hmm. um and we actually had a situation where uh the divine lost his weapon he threw it and he he got a six and things went to hell um (laughs) and it it ended with him losing his weapon and they had to go on this kind of search to find it and once he found it again he had to go through a trial um from his god to prove that he was still worthy to wield it after kind of throwing it away as the god saw it nice yeah i think definitely disarming certain characters is feels a lot more like a miss uh type of outcome a hard move what other types of, you know, go to hell type of situations do you uh, lean into when people are doing this move and they do get that six minus? You know, things go to hell. Sometimes it is apparent, um, but I find sometimes that it is even more fun to let them have kind of the just, you know, this thing doesn't seem to work. And they're thinking, well, what's what's going on? Like as players, well, what went to hell? And it's like, oh, well, you know, nothing that is immediately uh, visible to you. Mm-hmm. And just that suspense then for the players of, you know, uh, if go back to the werewolf, okay, so you tried to attack this werewolf 
and uh, you you know act under pressure to shoot him and things go to hell okay so the thing that went to hell is he he got away and they're thinking well that's not a big deal <laughs> but for me the what's gone to hell is that he has gone back now and he has warned his brethren mm-hmm. and they're going to send out a group of three people um you know to ambush them later or you know i i like things that uh that pay off a little later that may not be the that what has gone to hell is clearly visible in the moment but that it may pay off a little bit later uh in the hunt yeah and that totally leans into the element of this being a tv show you know you can't just unload everything on the players in the first couple episodes like there's got to be you know arcs and there's got to be a season finale you can't just give them you know oh you got bit by werewolf and you're werewolf now it's episode two like no no one yeah exactly no one gets turned into a werewolf in episode two that that's that's at least like a you know mid-season break type of cliffhanger you at least got to wait for a sweeps week (laughs) right that's sweeps weeks for sure (laughs) oh yeah so i had this other question that i wrote down and it has a different flavor now that i know that you do literally all three of these options um but i was going to ask you what, what is your which one's your favorite like what out of those three buckets of uh let, let's just recap them real quick so we have uh give a worse outcome offer a hard choice or give them a price to pay which of those three things is your secret favorite a price to pay I think that it is always so much more enjoyable for, you know, for the players, for the listeners, for whoever, if the character is sacrificing something to accomplish a good thing or to accomplish, you know, their own safety that they've have to sacrifice somebody else maybe and that other person doesn't know yet but they could find out later uh, that they knowingly kind of open them up for attack. So I I love uh price to pay. Yeah. So you said sacrifice. Do you often lean into, do you normally kind of make this a surface level thing? Like the price to pay is like, oh, you lose your gun or, oh, you lose an opportunity or, oh, you kind of miss position. Or do you sometimes lean into that being more ethereal, more emotional, more like long-term or lasting? Yeah, usually it's more the second. It could be the price to pay, you know, could be, um, you know, the person that they're trying to save getting kidnapped or, you know, the child that they had just rescued getting hit and and being aware that these things really exist or, you know, developing a, a long fear that will then, as they go through the story with a child, maybe she was going to be brave later, but because she got hit, she's now even more afraid and so becomes, you know, something harder to deal with as they're trying to move her through you know, the, the house to get her out or whatever. Yeah. I, I like hearing that you think about this move in really lasting story level ways. This, this could easily be a throwaway move. This is just a thing that we do when we don't have anything better to do, but it definitely feels, you know, across the board that you've elevated one of the most common moves in this system to having a lot of narrative weight and interest for the players and your listeners. Yeah, I mean, for me, this move is, in Monster of the Week, for me, this move is my bread and butter. Like, this is, I think, the thing that gives me the most chances to uh, enhance the narrative on my side without, again, forcing a narrative that I want on the players. Right. 
And if I recall correctly, I think uh, you guys got a pretty awesome shout out about this exact move and about we how did. you were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about it a little bit? Uh, yeah. I um, don't have it in front of me, but yeah, the the guy who writes the D&D comic for uh, IDW, and he also created uh, Jackie Jane Adventures and Leverage and uh, The Librarians. Gave a shout out just saying that he had started listening to our show and that he really liked, you know, everybody's flow. And he really liked the way that I did act under pressure and that listening to me do it made him understand it in a way that he had never understood it in playing the game before. Uh, So that was uh, I had to fan myself for a while. (laughs) I bet. I would have framed it. I would have printed that tweet out and framed it for yeah, sure. Yeah, I probably should. I probably should put it in the <laughs> studio somewhere. Uh, you know, honestly, though, I think you should kind of roll that into a guest uh, guest opportunity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This guy this guy needs to be on, on you know, on the show. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, I, we've somehow managed to fill up a whole episode uh, with one of these tiny moves again, and I couldn't possibly be happier about it. Was there any other... Uh, aspects of action or pressure that you wanted to talk about or mention or any, you know, tips and tricks? No, I really think the only other thing that we really didn't discuss is, you know, that on that full success, you know, instead of me describing how they do it, I always like to say, okay, so how do you do this? Because again, I want to give them the opportunity to paint their heroic moment. You know, how did you do this thing? And how did you get away? Or how did you, you know, overcome this, this terror? What do you do? And so, you know, giving that back to them and letting them describe the success I I always enjoy as well. Yeah, for sure. And this is a move that could very easily be co-opted by the the GM. Like this is a move that could be started, maintained and finished entirely by the GM just telling players things. Um, Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that you, you seem to, to go, you don't go out of your way. You, you, you want to do it too, but you put some serious effort into making sure that this move still resides with the players. Yeah. I love it. Well, Rev, thank you uh, for chatting about one of my easily top three PBTA games, Monster of the Week, is is easily one of my favorites. Um, and I love this move. Um, I do, uh, like you mentioned, this is your bread and butter. I feel like this is at the core of, of what Monster of the Week is supposed to feel like. So thank you for coming on and chatting about it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, if you'd like to, um, I know that you got the, the show, um, but feel free to, you know, plug the show or any other projects you you'd like to. So the listeners can check you out. Oh yeah. Uh, so we are, uh, as we said before the crit show and, uh, we play powered by the apocalypse games. Uh, right now our first season is monster of the week. You can find us almost anywhere. You can download podcasts. Uh, but we are also on, uh, the crit show podcast.com. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all at The Crit Show. Um, yeah, that's really it. That's where uh, all of our focus has been going right now. Well, it shows. I've, I've only listened to a few episodes. Um, as you can imagine, trying to listen to all of the PBTA-related podcasts is quite the chore. But Yes. I definitely, you know, there is a very distinct style to the way you and the players are doing Monster of the Week that is... It's unique. It, like, that's that's really the best way I can describe it. So I would urge anybody out there who's into Monster of the Week, this is not just another Monster of the Week actual play. You should totally check this out. It's it's a really cool flow. It feels fast and tense and exciting at every stop of the way. Yeah, and the, and the thing that we're finding actually is that as we grow our listenership, we're finding out that 
so many of our listeners are actually people who have never played a game before, but have always wanted to. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the first or the second story arc, um, you know, we have, I think, over 20 groups now who have contacted us saying, hey, we listen to the podcast and from listening to it, we learned how to play this game and now we have a group going. That's the best. Yeah, it's kind of we're trying to kind of use this as a uh, RPG gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I imagine a lot of people trying and get into RPGs and come across the actual plays pretty early in their internet searching. And I agree. I think it's an amazing way to see how how it can be done. And, you know, once you find a GM uh, and players that are doing it a way that resonates with you, suddenly learning and doing the game becomes so much easier and so much less daunting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Rev, for for taking time. Uh, again, everybody should go check out The Crit Show. We're still in the thick of season one here, uh, a few more months, uh, and we'll maybe see some dimension hopping. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Rev. And listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, I appreciate the space having a, a week off last week to do some family stuff, so I appreciate your support on that. Um, but I am back in the swing of things, and hopefully there will be uh, some pretty consistent Wednesday episodes coming your way for the foreseeable future. So thanks again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. This week we're celebrating another Patreon subscriber, Jim Hart. Jim, thank you for your contribution to The Hard Move. The Hard Move is hosted and produced by Matthew Gravelin. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Hard Move and support the show at patreon.com slash thehardmove. Music is by Nick Gravelin. You can find his work at nickgravelin.com. You can follow Rev on Twitter at RevDeShane and The Crit Show at The Crit Show. Content featured in this episode is from Monster of the Week by Michael Sands. For more information, visit EvilHat.com. <laughs>